Let's jump ahead today then, and let's talk about orthodoxy's unifying parameters. All right? Orthodoxy's unifying parameters. I wanted to kind of begin by reaching back to last week. We talked about Kruger and Kostenberger in their book, uh, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, uh, put out by InterVarsity Press, and they summarized the teaching of Orthodox theologian John Baer, and they say this about his, 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 his position, that he holds that the theology that emanated from the New Testament continued through the church fathers, was guarded by the apologists and solidified in the ecumenical church councils, that it represents a continuous, uninterrupted stream. The theology espoused by the Orthodox clarified, elucidated, and expounded the theology of the New Testament without deviating from it, and the creeds accurately represent the essence of the apostolic faith. Just a couple of points about that. Um, Orthodoxy finds its roots in the teaching of the New Testament. So that's where it's connected. It's connected with Christ and the apostles. It's getting its nourishment, if you will, from the text of the New Testament in that regard. We also spoke about how this is not to discount uh, the Old Testament, but we know that the New Testament, uh, to use Augustine's phrase, concealed in the Old and the old uh, revealed here in the new. And so we have uh, that continuity of, of truth. Secondly, orthodoxy was held to throughout the period of the church fathers. Now, there were many contestants against orthodox positions, uh, but there was something that we would call orthodoxy throughout the period of the early fathers of the church. And third, orthodoxy was guarded by the apologists and the councils as they defended and explain the faith set forth in the Scripture. All right, those are just a few observations from that statement there, summarizing Bear's position. And I want to kind of bring this into um, three different things. One, orthodoxy has a soil. Orthodoxy's soil. And that is the consistent teaching of, we could say, the New Testament or the apostolic witness or here I'm simply saying the apostles. Secondly, orthodoxy's protection. It's rooted there in the teaching of the apostles, that consistent teaching, and it's drawing its nourishment from that, but it needs to be guarded and it needs to be protected, and this addresses the issue of the formation of a canon. Thirdly, we want to look at orthodoxy's flowering the continuity of what is known as the rule of faith among the fathers. And with all of this, I'm trying to use the imagery of a garden, the idea of soil, the idea of something for the the trees and the bushes and the flowers to kind of ground themselves in and draw nutrients from. Uh, Gardens are like walled gardens. They're they're protected somehow from critters, (laughs) Uh, well, heretics that like to come in and, and, and mess up the garden, all right? And then there's the idea of having good and solid soil and being protected and preserved. There's a flowering. There's a, there's a growing of this to see the, the full beauty of it all. Um, so soil, protection, and flowering. Now today, uh, we're uh, going to try to begin to talk about these things. Uh, we probably have too much to talk about today today. 
uh, we may do this in a couple of a couple of weeks or two two different weeks. All right, orthodoxy soil, the consistent teaching of the apostles. When the early church looked for unifying parameters for the establishment of her orthodox life together, some want to paint a picture of the period, like Bauer and Ehrman, for example, that we looked at last week, that there were no unifying parameters to be found. Um, All was, we might say, up for grabs. Nothing upon which the early church could really build her life and and find some sense of cohesiveness, all right? Well, our view that we're taking here of the early church period is much different. And though there were clearly many competing voices in the early church, there were clear points of unity uh, with or in which the church found a, a strong a strong soil or a strong foundation. So I'm going to mention a few things, all right? Uh, <clears throat> this, this soil we've expressed earlier as the consistent teaching of the apostles. And I think I have about six different things here to kind of express this consistency that we find with the apostolic witness. So if you're a note taker, uh, the first is going to be the scriptures of the Old Testament themselves. We're probably not going to take a lot of time to look up a lot of texts, but we will start at least with this one. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. There was no question in the early church about the authority of the Old Testament. And when I say here the early church, I mean the days when the church is founded there in Acts chapter 2, the days of Paul and Peter. There is no question in the church about the authority of the Old Testament scripture. The law prophets, the writings. With this alone, there were some that we might call kind of a quasi-Gnostic group like a Marcion, and the rest of the full-blown Gnostic community would have been seen right away as out of bounds. Let me just pause there for a moment. We mentioned a man by the name of Marcion. You're thinking, who, who is that? Marcion was a teacher in the second century. And he basically held the view that the God of the Old Testament and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ were two different beings. That the God of the Old Testament was kind of harsh, kind of hard. But the God of the New Testament, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, was was softer, more, more accessible. And Marcion held this view that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, were, in fact, two different gods. To come to the early church with this kind of view would have been immediately noticed as out of bounds. Early believers clearly saw themselves as people of the book or books, and these were the point of coalescence of the faith of the church. Notice in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God or God breathed and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, adequate for every good work. In the context there of 2 Timothy 3, Scripture is clearly referring to the Old Testament written Scripture. These Scriptures, or sacred writings, were the sure word of prophecy, which the apostles expounded over and over again to the church for her establishment in the truth. Think of another text. Uh, The Apostle Paul, speaking to Timothy, 
telling him to preach the word. In 2 Timothy 4, 1-4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. And the word there, specifically, would be referring to the proclamation of the Old Testament. Just in your mind, kind of walk through some of the epistles of the Apostle Paul and gut them of the Old Testament. They would like almost collapse because so much that fills the book of Romans, that fills the book of Ephesians, is either direct quotation or allusion, or we might even call like an echo of the Old Testament scripture. Functionally speaking, the Old Testament provided a ready-made canon a standard or rule for the early church. W.F. Wiles has stated this in a, uh, a, an article that he wrote on Origin. He said, There was never a time when the church was without written scriptures. From the beginning she had the Old Testament, and it was for her the oracles of God. Sometimes we talk about the development of the canon. and We're going to mention more about that later today and maybe next week. The church has never been without a canon. When the church originally is established by Christ and the apostles go out proclaiming the gospel, the Old Testament is clearly in existence. Um, they are quite familiar with it. So with this point of centrality being given to the Old Testament in the New Covenant community, Kruger says this, he says, right from the outset, certain versions of Christianity would have been ruled as out of bounds. People begin to come in and challenge the Old Testament. And the early church is like, that doesn't, that doesn't fly. That doesn't, that doesn't work. Think about a second thing, the preaching and teaching of the apostles. Uh, look, for example, in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Clearly, the early church was devoted to the doctrinal instruction and formulation of that doctrine for the churches. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. No one else's teaching. The apostles were seen as the authoritative teachers of the church. The early Christians received the teaching of the apostles as if their teaching was the very word of God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verse 13, he commends the Thessalonians because they received his teaching as if it was the very word of God. A third uh, point of orthodoxy soil. There is an early conscious awareness that the writings and teachings of the apostles bore canonical weight. In other words, the Old Testament clearly is authoritative for the early church. And as the apostles begin to teach... It's not on a scale where the Old Testament scripture, you know, is here, like the fat kid on the seesaw. Remember that? You know, down on the bottom. And then the New Testament apostles' instruction is like, you know, the little light kid that everybody liked to push around and launch, you know, at different places. No, it was, there was a sense of equality, a sense of equal weightiness placed upon these two things. Um, there's a shared understanding among the New Covenant community that the teaching of the apostles bore the weight of authority. This would have bound them together and provided a unifying element to the challengers wherever they were to be found. Hear this from 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll look this text up maybe later. Let me just read it to you. 2 Peter 3, verse 15. 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. You know, I've started here. Turn there. Turn there. You need to see this too. All right. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Maybe we'll take three weeks to get through this. All right. 2 Peter 3, 15. And you're all thinking, when are we going to get to Nicaea? That's what you want to get to is Nicaea. You want to see, you know, Nicholas slap Arius or something like that, you know, um, so you can make a meme. Oh, somebody already made a meme. So you're late. 2 Peter 3, 15. Look there with me. Now I'm reading out of the ESV, and I'm sorry about that. Um, I, these are some notes I had that I didn't change the, uh, the text on. So, <clears throat> and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Note, he writes not of his own opinion. He writes according to the wisdom that has been given to him. James tells us what? There's only two kinds of what? Only two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom that comes from above, and there's the wisdom from below. As he does in all his letters, this is what he does. He writes in his letters from the wisdom given to him, and he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, <laughs> no doubt, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, notice this phrase, as they do the what? The other scriptures. The other scriptures, the, the term scripture here is a term, a common term in the New Testament period for them to refer to the Old Testament text. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away from the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Notice these false teachers, these erroneous teachers, these heretics, if you will, there are some things that ignorant and unstable, they twist to their own destruction and they do this with the other what? The other scriptures. There are at least two words that are used in the Greek New Testament for the concept of other. There is heteros, which means other of a different kind, and there's alos, which means other of the same kind, right? Remember, Jesus is crucified with two other criminals, heteros, two criminals of a different sort, they're criminals that are actually what? They're actually guilty. Remember, one of them actually says, you know, we're, we're here because we deserve to be here. He hasn't anything wrong. But what, what Peter says here, he doesn't use heteros. He uses alas, and he means they twist the other scriptures, the other scriptures that are of the same kind and nature as the writings of the apostle Paul. He's making a comparison here between Paul's writings and the other scriptures. Now, we don't need that word, others, other, in there. They can just say, as they do the scriptures, because we've already made clear, or Peter's already made clear in verse 15, that Paul is writing in all of his letters according to the wisdom that is given to him. It's a revealed kind of wisdom. Fourthly, the centrality and primacy of the gospel. Paul had delivered the gospel to the churches, and there was to be no strain from it. When the Galatian churches did in fact stray from this gospel, they were reproved, you might recall. Not because they had chosen another equally valid option. If we take Ehrman's idea that there are just Christianities in the New Testament period, then leaving the gospel of Paul for another kind of gospel wouldn't really be that big of a deal at all. Paul wouldn't have a ground to stand on. But in fact, later in Galatians 1, he even says things like, 
I didn't receive this gospel from men, nor was I taught it by men. I received it, what? By revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells them in Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which he goes on to say is really no gospel at all. The fundamental importance of and knowledge of and agreement in this gospel is expressed to the church in Corinth. Consider 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Notice that Paul's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, being one who died and was buried, who was raised and appeared, is in accordance with the what? The scriptures. Twice he says that in this brief passage. My preaching as an apostle is in accord with the scriptures. Once again, we find that correspondence between the two. Fifth, apostolic agreement in this gospel. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Some would pose the idea that the early church was made up of a variety of schools of thought. For example, that there was a division between Peter and Paul. You'll, you'll hear this. You'll, you'll read this in books or whatever. There's Peter's gospel and there's Paul's gospel. Or there's, uh, there's Peter's Jesus and there's Paul's Jesus. All right? They will cite events like the disagreement between Peter and Paul and Antioch spoken of in the second chapter of Galatians. However, they fail to notice that Paul's reason for recounting their disagreement was to highlight their point of reconciliation in the gospel itself. He doesn't highlight his disagreement with Peter and then say, well, that's because Peter preached a gospel and I preach a gospel. We both preach some different kind of gospel. No. While Peter was to minister among the Jews, Paul was to minister, listen, the very same gospel among the Gentiles. Listen in Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just did just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel, same gospel, to the, to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for my to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, etc., etc. You see the point. There is apostolic agreement in what the gospel is. There is no Petrine gospel, Pauline gospel, Johannine gospel. There is simply the gospel. One final point here on this soil of orthodoxy, the consistent teaching of the apostles. The practical use of this apostolic instruction is found in the weighing of competing truth claims. Let me just give you a few examples of this. You could go back to Galatians 1. Uh, there's a there's a weighing of competing truth claims, and Paul concludes there's only one gospel. Or Titus chapter 1 
in verse 9. We're just going to read these. This is the qualifications for an elder that Paul gives to Titus. An elder must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Can you complete this for me? And do what? Refute those who contradict. The elder must not just exhort in sound doctrine. He must refute those people who are contradicting sound doctrine. In order for that to even happen, there has to be a thing called sound doctrine to refute what's against it. You see how if, if, if they're just competing Christianities, all right, then this, this falls apart. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. How can you test if there's no fixed standard? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is why some believe that 1 John is kind of written to a community or communities that may be influenced by some kind of early form of Gnostic dualism, maybe a docetic type Gnosticism that, that uh, looks at the flesh of Christ and says, Jesus didn't really have a body. He didn't really come in, in the form of a man. He he just kind of appeared to have a body. That, that word docetic, the docetic Gnostics, comes from the term dokeo, which means to appear or to seem. Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these texts, and many more could be offered, and we'll look at some others here in a few moments connected with some other points, they all draw attention to the conviction that the apostolic canon or rule was adequate to guard the church against competing claims to truth. So thus, the church had what might be termed an early apostolic canon a rule or a standard, the teaching of the apostles themselves rooted in the Old Testament scripture in which there was agreement as the gospel spread amongst the churches of the first century. Now, over time, this canon is written down. It's collected, it's formed into what we now have as the New Testament with the understanding that this instruction was binding upon the church and shared amongst the churches. All right, so that's a little bit for the idea of the soil. Um, comments? Questions? Yeah, Tom. <laughs> I'm sorry? Oh, sorry. Thank you. Yes. <laughs>
Yeah, interestingly, uh, when uh, Marcion does come along, he forms his own canon, which becomes an encouragement and an impetus for the early church in the second century to kind of maybe speed things up a little bit, if you will. Uh, Marcion has a canon that has 10 of Paul's letters, um, all but uh, the pastoral epistles, well, also minus Hebrews. Uh, You can imagine being a guy that rejects the Old Testament. What would you do with the book of Hebrews? I mean, talk about a book that would deflate if you took all the references out. Um, And he also, uh, he does adopt the Gospel of Luke, uh, but it's very gutted as well. Uh, But he he likes Paul and uh, probably thinks that Paul's been kind of corrupted by some later copyists or something like that. But Paul's the most Christian of the, of the apostles. Well, it's important to keep in mind when we say that there was something known as orthodoxy in the second century, it was not alone. There were, there were competing truth claims. But what I'm trying to make a case for here is that when there are competing truth claims, they were, they were not without a standard to measure things against, a standard that was very clear and widely accepted uh, in, the, in, the, in the realm of the early church. There were battles. Clearly there were, and we'll get to some of those, especially when we look at Nicaea and Arianism and things like that. Um, heresy can, uh, you know, we live in a day today where we have a full canon, all 66 books. We have 2,000 years of the history of the church. Uh, even within our own reformed circles these days, we have people calling into question the orthodoxy of things like Nicaea. And so um, heresy just never dies, does it? It just keeps coming over and over again. Yeah, Billy? Well, have you ever heard, I think, something like that the, the, the greatest commandment of all is to be nice? You know, um, you know, just be nice. You know, like your mom's sending you off to kindergarten. You're battling against Arianism and ancient heresies, and mom says, make sure you're nice. Be nice to Arius when you see him. And, uh, you know, um, I remember, uh, I forget who it was. It may have been Polycarp telling the story of John the Apostle, who some early false teacher came into like a public bath. And I think Polycarp tells the story of John, that John says, like, flee the building, get out, the heretic so-and-so is in, before the building collapses. You can imagine that kind of a message to a whole bunch of men in a public bathhouse. Uh, anyway, we'll move along. But, uh, yeah, you know, we, we should always be loving and full of the grace of Christ. But that doesn't mean that sometimes there's a need for uh, reproof that's even strong. Um, 
Jesus reserved some of his harshest words for the religious leaders of his day. He often had great compassion on the sheep that were being led astray. But you think of the Old Testament, the, uh, the message of like the prophet Ezekiel toward the shepherds that were feeding themselves. Uh, Jesus comes in his words to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were feeding themselves and often at the expense of God's people and uh, had some very harsh words to say to those. And um, I suppose we should always, in these kinds of considerations, take Paul's words where he says, uh, in your anger, do not sin. There is certainly a place for righteous indignation, um, but I don't want to sin at the same time. And so... Yeah, how to deal with those you're trying to snatch out of the fire, you know. Uh, do you want to have a real cordial conversation with your friend and warn him about something, or you just want to run in there and, like, grab him and pull him out of the building? And uh, so, yeah. And I think Jude's comments are probably mainly related to those who are being led astray by the false teachers, not necessarily the com- or our approach to the false teachers themselves. Uh, but he's kind of... Uh, he's kind of showing that there needs to be like an escalation of urgency sometimes, depending on how, how bad it is in that regard. And so, you know, my friend gives me a call and tells me, hey, look, I've decided I'm not going to be confessional. I'm going to be going to this uh, conservative Bible-preaching evangelical church down the street. And inside my heart, you know, I grieve or whatever, that kind of a thing. And I want to I wanna encourage him to come back. Uh, my friend tells me, hey, look, you know, I've decided to be a, me- a Methodist. And I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> but an evangelical sort, if you will, all right? And I'm like, oh, man, that's, that, that's not good. My friend calls me and tells me, man, I've been watching these great videos by Benny Hinn, and they're, like, awesome, and I want you to come over next week and watch them. And I come over next week, and I yank him, you know, by the head and pull him out of the building and burn his television. I'm just, I'm, I'm speaking a little hypoth- hypothetically here, hyperbolically here, but the, the urgency would turn up, all right? And um, it would go from thank you, I'll be praying for you to let me really caution you about that to let me warn you, brother, if you go to that path, the only thing that awaits is destruction. And so in my, my bodily language, my physical presence would probably change. I would probably uh, escalate those things a little bit. Well, let's move on. Uh, there are going to be more questions, I know. Uh, let's talk about orthodoxy's protection. So we've got this soil It's rich in the apostolic period with the apostles' teaching. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It's uh, and we 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 laid out those six different things. How is this to be guarded? All right. Uh, Consider first uh, different guards. The early churches recognized the teaching of the apostles as the very word of God, a word to be obeyed and preserved in writing. Now this is going to overlap somewhat with what we did before but it's going to move us to the concept of the formation of a canon. So the guardian of the church. The early churches recognized the teaching of the apostles as the very word of God, a word to be obeyed and preserved in writing. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We mentioned this text a little bit ago. Let's read it now. 1 Thessalonians 2. I'm going to begin in verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. They considered the verbal proclamation, the verbal teaching of the apostles as the word of God. Or to visit again, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Consider secondly, this authoritative word of the apostles was being written down and continued in written form to be considered binding upon the churches. It didn't like lose punch when they wrote it down. Second um, Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, the first text I just read a minute ago was 1 Thessalonians 2. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this you were called through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. Now, we don't have time to go into this right now. Maybe later we can do this. Um, This is one of the points of departure for Rome, where they want to hold that, yes, there's the written authoritative word of the apostles, but there's also the spoken word of tradition, and these become two streams in Roman Catholicism of revelation. Um, Stream one, the written word of God. Stream two, the tradition of the apostles, that since they espouse apostolic succession, that tradition continues to develop and grow as well. And then over all of that, you have what's called the magisterium, the pope and the bishops, and they are the only ones that are authorized to interpret those two streams of tradition. But those two streams of tradition in Roman Catholicism are seen on equal, they're given equal weight in that regard. But even a greater weight is given to the magisterium to interpret those two streams of tradition. That is not what Paul, I believe, is saying here. The traditions that they were taught by him, either by the spoken word or by the letter, these would be, they would coalesce, they would be the same. Here again from Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, I won't read the text, but just consider again the writings of the Apostle Paul. He says that he writes with the wisdom given to him in all of his letters, and these are on par with the other scriptures. Number three, these words were being shared by the churches as binding upon each other. It's not just that one church got one letter, and this was their letter. And another church got another letter, and this was their letter, all right? Uh, no, there was a sharing of the letters. Think about a couple of texts. Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, we find, I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house When this letter is read among you, that is the letter of Colossians, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. Send this letter to them. And as binding as this letter is upon you, so it will be upon them. And then he says, and you for your part, read my letter that comes from Laodicea. And actually he says, it is coming from Laodicea 
meaning that he probably had a disclaimer at the end of the Laodicean letter like this one. Send this letter to the Colossians. And when you do that, also read the letter that's coming from them. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, notice this phrase, to the churches of Galatia. There is no town of Galatia. I don't know how many times I read the book of Galatians in my life and thought, well, this is the letter to the Galatian church. It's not the letter to the Galatian church. It's the letter to the churches of Galatia. It'd be like saying, I'm writing you a letter to the churches in uh, the Texas Area Association, or I'm writing a letter to the churches in North Texas, or something like that, all right? It's a region in modern-day Turkey. It makes up several, several churches are in this area. Paul's authority is felt powerfully throughout the whole of the letter, binding all the churches in the same geographical area to his apostolic authority. Think about Revelation chapter 1. And you're familiar with Revelation chapter 1, this revelation of Jesus Christ given to the angel, given to John. John says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. How many churches get this letter? Seven churches get this letter. And then you know in chapters 2 and 3 there's specific letters written to each church, but it's already been told that the churches should do what with the letter? Share the letter with everybody, all right? The problems in Ephesus may be specifically related to Ephesus, but they're not uniquely related to Ephesus. Everyone can possibly leave their first love. Everyone can be infiltrated by the Nicolaitans or someone else, right? They were to share this letter. One final thing here on this, consideration here should be given to the book of Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, These epistles are commonly called what? Do you know? I'm sorry? The Catholic epistles or the general epistles. Catholic meaning universal. That's a great term for that, all right? In other words, oh, it cut off. Now I can hear. Sorry. Um, You feel like you've been standing inside the return of an air conditioner? Do you ever get that experience? Just to stand inside the return and come out... Oh, so I can, I can hear a lot of things now. Okay. Yes, so these are letters that lack a designator or they are written specifically to, like Peter writes, to, to the Jews of the dispersion and, and Pontia, Cappadocia. It's, it's like a giant list of, of areas that this letter is being kind of shot out to, all right? You can, you can think of Peter was originally emailing all these churches. He would, have, he would have all these churches in the address there at the top, and then he would maybe, maybe he'd copy Paul, you know, or copy himself or whatever, all right? He's sending these out. It's, it's like a blast email to a lot of places that he, that he has access to. You can see how we could take a long time on that. Let's move on. Consider number four. These written works, as to their provenance or their origin, were recognizable. They were recognizable. This is very interesting to me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says this at the end of his letter. He 
says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this, listen, this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Why would he say that? Because he wants to give the Thessalonians like a letter in apostolic penmanship. He wants to make sure they know how to you know, write their E's and like a, like a lesson. No, he wants them to know this is an authentic letter from me. Even in the first century, there were all kinds of apostles, not, not imposters, I suppose we could say, or people writing letters. Paul even talks to Thessalonians. I hear that you may have, maybe you've even received a letter as if it was from me. But it's not from me. And you can tell because you can compare the signature. You can compare the way it's written. This is the way I write in all my letters. Now, there are sometimes Paul doesn't write the letter. For example, Romans. Romans, he has what's called an amanuensis. He has tertius, all right? And uh, Paul kind of takes a breath there in Romans chapter 16, dictating this letter to Tertius. And when Paul takes a breath, Tertius goes, this is my chance. I, Tertius, write this on my own hand. And Paul starts back up again. Oh, man, I barely got that in there. I'm so glad I, I got to write my name in the book, all right? I wonder if Paul ever checked Romans 16. Tertius, Tertius, I don't think I dictated this over here. What is, what is this addition to my letter, all right? Taking some liberties, Tertius. Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Some think, for example, Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about this messenger of Satan, uh, was a reference that Paul's making to some of his physical ailments and struggles. Possible. I don't know if that's it or not. But whatever it was about Paul, he wrote with large letters. Maybe his eyes were going bad. Who knows? The man was beaten and imprisoned and Went through all kinds of things. It's amazing he could even see it all, probably. Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. And Philemon, Philemon, in verse 19, says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. In other words, Philemon would have known Paul's penmanship. He would have, it would have been distinctive. He would have known this. Or all these statements about him writing things with his own hand, if the people don't know anything about his own writing, they're like pointless comments. There's an assumption that they know this is recognizable as coming from Paul. And that matters to the church, because if it didn't come from Paul, if it didn't come from the apostles, or maybe we might say an apostolic man, an apostolically appointed man, then it may not be given credibility. Number five, number five, the material all was beginning to coalesce in an accepted tradition commonly referred to as the faith. I really wish we had more time on this, but let me just say a couple things. Jude. Jude verse 3. We mentioned this earlier. He says, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Interestingly, if you pull your Greek out later on, you'll find that the article the and the word faith are separated from the beginning and end of the sentence. And the way it literally translates is, I want you to contend for the once for all delivered to the saints faith. Like just hyphenate all those words and kind of pull them all together. That's what it is. It's the faith. It's the once for all delivered to the saints faith. The time prevents us from tracing out the significance of this phrase, the faith, especially in Paul's writings. But if done throughout the New Testament, one will find that the faith is something that is to be taught or known. It is something to nourish the soul. It is something revealed, unknown by men on their own. It is something that is true. It is something that is fully authoritative, and it is something that is complete. 
not to be added to. Now, let me just make a few points or observations about all these texts. Number one is this. There is a developing sense in this period of a core of New Testament books. We already have the letter of Peter. We have him affirming the writings of the Apostle Paul. If we were to go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we would see that Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke from Luke chapter 10 in that text there about how the preacher is to be paid. There is, these works would have been seen as apostolic in origin or provenance. Number three, being apostolic afforded them immediate authority in the eyes of the church. Number four, apostolic works were already being collected and were known. And number five, we see here, what we see developing here is an early form of a New Testament canon. Now, you ought to have the handout uh, that, I, that I gave you there, all right? History confirms for us that one does not have to wait until the 4th or 5th century to find the church's affirmation of the books that we have in our New Testament today. Uh, if you ever get into conversation with some about the idea of the development of the canon, some will come along and say, the church didn't have a New Testament canon until the 5th century. There were a couple of synods. They weren't ecumenical councils. They were more like local synods uh, that met in the, in the, in the 5th century for the 450, 460 time frame. I forget exactly the dates. And there was an affirmation at those synods of the a recognition of the books that we have in the New Testament. So some will say, we just didn't have a canon until the 5th century. So what did the church do for 400 years? Well, the church depended upon the magisterium. The church depended upon the pope. The church depended upon the bishops, right? Um, well, that is, that, is, that is not the case. For example, let's back up from the, from the 5th century, I'm sorry, to the 4th century, to 367. Now, aren't you glad I gave you a piece of paper? All right. So, Athanasius, in 367, every year, Athanasius, as the bishop of Alexandria, would write a festal letter, kind of like an Easter letter, all right? This would go out to the churches. And Athanasius, in what is known as his 39th letter, in the fifth paragraph, and you can look these up, they're all online, I'm sure you can find them. He says this, Again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. These are the four Gospels. By the way, every time we see reference made in the early church to the Gospels, it's always the four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They, they travel together. Now, there are Gnostic Gospels. There are other Gospels that do kind of come up and pop up from time to time. There are men like Marcion who discount Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, or Matthew, Mark, and John, and just embrace the truncated version of Luke. But when the church is speaking of the Gospels, there are always four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles, the epistles called Catholic, seven, James, one, Peter, two, John, three, after these, one of Jude. In addition, there were 14 epistles of Paul. <laughs> Note that, 14 epistles of Paul. And uh, written in this order, <coughs> the first to the Romans, then two to the Corinthians, after these, the Galatians, next the Ephesians, then the Philippians, then the Colossians. After these, two to the Thessalonians, two to the Hebrews, and again, two to Timothy, one to Titus. And lastly, that to Philemon. And besides this, the revelation of John 27. This is in 367. Now, this is not Athanasius declaring that these are the books. 
This is not him declaring with some kind of, you know, authority of a bishop over the whole church. These are the letters. Let no more be admitted. He's simply acknowledging the fact that these are the 27 books, right? Um, He would have written this letter to the church, and they wouldn't have been sitting there hearing the festal letter. Get out. You've got to be kidding me. No, we all know there are 52 books, or there's 28 books, or there's 23 books, or whatever. Athanasius, what have you been doing down there in Alexandria? No, this was, this was accepted, uh, an under, accepted understanding. That's 367. Let's back up about 120 years to 249. Now, I know that Origen is not always your best friend. All right? Origen is one of those squirrely dudes. Right? He's kind of like nailing jello to the wall. And uh, sometimes he sticks and sometimes he doesn't. And uh, sometimes he's a great guy and other times you're thinking, man, what were you drinking? All right? Origen has a commentary on Joshua, and really it's a collection of homilies or sermons. And I believe this is taken from homily number seven. Yeah, Joshua 7.1, his, his seventh homily on Joshua. Notice what he says. But when our Lord Jesus Christ comes, whose arrival that prior, that prior son of none designated. Who's the prior son of none? Joshua, the son of none. In other words, this is like a typological relation between Joshua and, and Jesus, all right? He sends priests, his apostles, bearing trumpets, hammered thin. This is, this is great imagery. This is Joshua. What's happening in Joshua? What are they doing? Yeah, all right. They're going in. The Battle of Jericho. The trumpets are blowing. And, and Origen's going to find here a comparison to the formation of the canon. We'll talk um, maybe a little later about apostolic and post-apostolic hermeneutics. And they're very interesting, very fascinating. Um, and uh, in fact, we're going to be um, talking about in the announcements today, you'll see in the bulletin, maybe you've already seen it, we're going to try to start up a guy's book study in September, and we're going to be uh, going through uh, Irenaeus's uh, apostolic preaching, and in there he has a section on Irenaeus's hermeneutics, and it's really, it's really quite fascinating. Um, so anyway, back up. But when our Lord Jesus Christ comes whose arrival that prior of son designated, he, Christ, sends priests, that is his apostles, bearing trumpets hammered thin. Now, maybe you're not a trumpet player. I was a trumpet player in school. And the thinner the bell on the trumpet, the more crisp and clear the sound. Uh, if you want a French horn, got a big, big old bell, thick bell or whatever, it makes kind of a full sound. Trumpet with a thin bell makes that piercing, sharp sound. The magnificent and heavenly instruction of proclamation. Matthew first sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also, Luke, and John each played their own priestly trumpets. Even Peter cries out with trumpets in two of his epistles, also James and Jude. Here's the general or Catholic epistles. In in addition, John also sounds the trumpet through his epistles, and Revelation, and Luke, as he describes the acts of the apostles. And now the last one comes, the one who said, I think God displays us apostles last in 14 of his epistles, thundering with trumpets. He casts down the walls of Jericho and all the devices of idolatry and dogmas of philosophers all the way to the foundation. 27 New Testament books affirmed in 249 by Origen. It's back up about 70 or 80 years. 180 AD, 
there's a document known as the Moratorian Fragment. The Moratorian Fragment lists 22 of our 27 New Testament texts. Michael Kruger sums this up in an article he writes on the canon. He said, what is noteworthy for our purposes here is that the Moratorian Fragment affirms 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament. These include the four Gospels, Acts, all 13 epistles of Paul, Jude, 1 John, 2 John, possibly 3 John, and Revelation. This means that a remarkably early point, the end of the 2nd century, the central core of the New Testament canon was already established and in place. The study of the canon is it's just quite fascinating. And you might sit there and think, well, man, why couldn't they just get it together earlier? Well, you know, God didn't FedEx the New Testament out of heaven and it just like fell all nicely bound and leather covered or whatever uh, with a couple of red ribbons that you, could, that you could use or whatever. That's not the way it worked. God works through means. And when you think about how slow it is even still today to get an email, you ever sat there talking with somebody on the phone? I just sent you an email. Five minutes later, I never got your email. I'll send it again. 47 times later, you finally get T-Mobile's email or whatever. All right? It's still slow sometimes in our own day to get information. We're talking about a day in the second century, information traveling around the Mediterranean world. And it's amazing to me uh, that we have this early dating in 180 of the Moratorian Fragment. That doesn't mean that from, let's say, 80 A.D. to 180, there was nothing. Uh, there was a lot. And, and other information could be found. But we have, as early as 180 A.D., 22 of our 27 texts. Somebody comes along and tells you one day, we had to wait 500 years to get a New Testament canon. That's why we needed the Pope. Um, no. No, that's incorrect. Um, Not to say that the bishops were pointless. They certainly were not. And we're going to talk about them here later when we talk about Orthodoxy's protection in the formation of her canon. All right. Um, Did I just miss a bunch of stuff here? Evidence from the church? I did. This is all in your paper, wasn't it? I certainly hope so. All right. We'll come back to this later. Orthodoxy's flower.